0: Diverse voices. Unique sound.
1: Not the same old thing. Different. Different.
0: This is NOCO FM.
1: Please don't go. I need you. So I. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. Today, I am taking a break from creating COVID-related content and kind of a break in general because the last few weeks have taken their toll on me in a pretty serious way, but for good reason. As I said in the last episode, I finished the narrative portion of the feminist hot dog book, title forthcoming. And since then, I have had the distinct pleasure of going through all my old episodes and selecting excerpts that will appear between the book chapters and that has been such a fun experience that I decided to pull out a few clips from old shows and do a best of show for folks who might be newer listeners or who might have missed some of these episodes back in the day. It will come as no surprise that I've had some really brilliant guests on here and getting to relive some of these conversations was super fun for me and I hope it will be for you too. I picked each of these interviews for a different reason, which I'll explain as I go, but one of the things that these clips have in common was that I vividly remember these moments as an interviewer, and the ideas that the guests express, for whatever reason, really stuck with me. Another thing I realized almost after the fact was that all of these clips relate to projects or callings or endeavors that these guests felt really passionate about. So it's not surprising that that passion came through and made an impact on me as the person on the other side of the microphone. Before we dive in today, I do wanna give a shout out to my friends at Monochrome Candles, who have been playing a big part in my pandemic sanity strategy. I have Monochrome Candles in almost every room in my house now, and whenever I move, say, from the bedroom to the living room or the living room to the kitchen, I pretty much just blow out one candle and light another, so they've been getting uh, a pretty serious workout at my house, but as long as I trim the wicks, they burn and burn and burn, and, The smell as well as the ritual has had an incredibly calming effect on me. I think I have sung the praises of the jasmine fig scent before and I go back and forth between that one and rosemary lavender is my favorite but they are all luscious all natural hand poured by a friend of mine in Illinois who started this business from her home and continues to run it out of her home. Uh, Feminist hot dog listeners get 15% off if you use the discount code hotdog at checkout. So head on over to shopmonochrome.com, pick out your scent, and get 15% off with the code HOTDOG and relax. So to start off with today, I'm revisiting some moments from my interview with Janice Schmieding, creator and host of Woman of Size podcast, which if you haven't listened to it, you definitely should, and I will link it in the show notes. It's a very funny and informative show and also very eye-opening on a number of different levels. Jana identifies as a writer, a performer, an educator, an indigenous feminist, and a fat person. She is explicit about wanting to destigmatize the word fat. She also identifies as Lakota, which is her tribal affiliation. And if you follow her on social media, you will see that native liberation and decolonization are also central to her message. Jana is also a comedy writer and she lives in L.A. where she writes for the TV show Rutherford Falls, among many other creative projects. Here's Jana talking about the origins of her podcast, Woman of Size.
2: Originally, the project was going to be a live show project. It was going to be a comedy show that amplified people of size in the comedy community because being in Los Angeles... I mean, being anywhere, but specifically being in Los Angeles and being in Hollywood, like being a fat person is um, it's just really hard to have any space that's like safe and fun and enjoyable where you don't feel like your body is being completely um, objectified. I think that um, also we're encountering in Hollywood specifically these kind of new voices who are trying to discuss fatness like in film and TV Um, and it's like not quite hitting the um, expectations of actual fat people. (laughs) Um, So I was like, this is a really important thing that we need to like address and we also a, a lot of my peers and colleagues are comedy people. So I was like, we need a space for ourselves. Like it fucking sucks to have to grind in this industry and not have a community that you can talk with safely about a lot of the aggressions and microaggressions that you encounter as a fat person in a predominantly thin industry, an industry that praises thinness, that loves thinness. Anywho, it was going to be a live show that was um, really amplifying comedians of size. But I I also, there are some problems that come with that because then if I invite people to do this show, am I labeling them fat? Like, am I stigmatizing them? Maybe they don't identify as that. Being seen as a fat person is one thing. Being heard as a fat person and not being seen is a totally different kind of approach to telling a story about fatness or about marginalization you take the element of being seen out of the equation and um, I think it's easier to hear Um, so I said okay maybe it's gonna be a live show and a podcast and then I was like maybe I just make a podcast and then occasionally have a live show Mm. and I like the idea of podcast too because podcasting is really a one-way medium And something that I think a lot of um, people have issues with is listening (laughs) to stories from marginalized people. So I was like, this is perfect. Let's just make a podcast where people just talk into a microphone and tell their stories and talk about identity and change the narrative. And, you know, listeners just listen.
1: I asked Jana to talk about her pathway to calling herself an indigenous feminist, and her answer is one of those moments I referenced earlier that both struck me and also stuck with me and has permanently influenced my own thinking. Here's what she had to say.
2: When I started to truly identify as a feminist was in my undergrad when I was, you know, taking women's studies courses and ethnic studies courses. And I immediately got involved with grassroots organizing when I was a student because I was part of a ethnic student union, the Native American student union at my college. And I collaborated, you know, we collaborated with the Black Student Union and the Jewish Student Union and Mecha and Apasu, all of the different ethnic cultural student unions. We did a lot of like collaborating around students, issues that pertain to being uh, students of color in a predominantly white academic setting. So I learned really early on, like, the frameworks with which I wanted to approach that kind of work. And, yeah, at the same time, I was kind of doing um, theater arts, and I was studying feminism in theater, and surprise, surprise, it was really white. So still kind of experiencing it differently than what I was studying, if that makes any sense. Like, experiencing feminism still through an indigenous lens, but not really having the language to be able to describe that and not really having access to research that could help me build language around it. I kind of waffled in my young adulthood about feminism and felt like it. I didn't, I, I just didn't have the language, you know, to really understand what I was trying to embody, but I understood the experience of a feminine identity within white spaces and I understood what it looked like within colonized native spaces and I also understood what it looked like in decolonized native spaces from a very young Mm -hmm. age so yeah I think within the last five or so years honestly like in my 30s isn't until I've really started to identify as an indigenous feminist and starting to see feminism through the lens of settler colonialism the reason I say that is because um, I think modern feminist thought does often come from a white lens. Mm-hmm. And I and it does not have um, space for pre-colonial experience, which was largely balanced in terms of gender roles and mm. even had um, roles for people who um, identified as multiple genders or a gender. Um, gender discrimination didn't really exist for indigenous people you know until colonialism took over and imposed a a government system and a structure upon this land and that imposition is what we now recognize to be patriarchy and a white supremacist patriarchy and within that that paradigm, I recognize that the the things that indigenous women and femme people are experiencing come from the same place that all oppressions arrive from, which is this white supremacist patriarchy. But an indigenous feminist lens takes it back to settler colonialism as the source. And it and it recognizes that this is not the natural state of this world, (laughs) and that it hasn't been, and that we have relatives who have experienced what it might otherwise look like. Um, But I think that feminism a lot of time leaves out that narrative, and it doesn't address, it doesn't necessarily even look to Native women and Indigenous feminists for answers. When a lot of that body of thought and way of living it has answers (laughs) in it. If we were just to give it a little bit of focus and attention.
1: I want to add one final clip from my conversation with Jana because she was really generous with her time and her experience. And one of the places our conversation took us was looking at the differences between body positivity and body liberation, which is something I had a lot to learn about when I started this show. Take a listen.
2: The term body positivity, I don't even use it anymore. In fact, there was recently um, a tweet from uh, Megan Tanja's, uh, and her tweet was, body positivity is dead mm. now. It's fat liberation or bust. Love it. <laughs> and highly agree, highly agree. Um, and I feel like Really, in reality, body positivity isn't necessarily the goal of the original fat justice movements, which started in the 1960s with the civil rights movement by extremely marginalized people, (laughs) black women and trans femmes, all these, you know, extremely marginalized people who start these movements and eventually, of course... It gets co-opted by whiteness. (laughs) I will say that, like, even just in the last couple of years doing this podcast, that certainly, like, fat bodies in the mainstream has become more acceptable. But it's slow. I mean, I was an educator for many years in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, which is one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. And if you're an educator in the Bronx... You better, if you aren't, if you haven't, <laughs> become educated around racial injustice and, the, and you know, major thought leaders in, like, black liberation movements and in education. And, you know, you need to know your community. So, there was a lot of, like, professional development and stuff that was available to us around these topics. However, never once, as an educator have I had a professional development session or workshop that addresses anti-fat aggressions and microaggressions? Never. I mean, what would it be like if in our work environments, like, you know, when we're going through, like, diversity trainings, we're also understanding or learning about weight stigma as a social injustice or disordered eating as a social injustice, you know? Um, It feels like we're so far away from that and that's how far away we are (laughs) you know um we don't see fat justice as a justice issue and like value um personal value as a social justice issue but i think it absolutely is Um, So if we're not in a position where we're having conversations about this pretty widely, then we're still a long ways away from actual justice, (laughs) you know, and that will inform our positivity. Right. right. Because I always say that, like, in terms of my own journey, like body positivity is it's an intellectual journey as much as it as it is a personal and emotional journey. Yeah. we have to really think about, like, the origins of why we need a body positivity movement in the first place. (laughs) Why do we need this? How has our value and self-worth become so low that we need a fucking dove body product to tell us that we're having some chub on our thighs and that's fine? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Like, I understand that people are at different points in reclaiming, like, our self-acceptance and everything. Um, but I feel like my mission on the podcast and in life is to reinforce that it's actual work it's actual intellectual work to learn to love our bodies and to at least be body neutral you know and that that work doesn't exist in a vacuum it's not just you and your mirror and some positive fucking thinking it actually requires a lot of reading and listening and unlearning and and redesigning the ways we think about bodies and selfhood. I mean, that's the other thing. And it kind of speaks to the what I was saying earlier about like uh, the limits of our justice. If we're self-proclaimed feminists walking around constantly looking in the mirror and asking other female friends, do I look fat? That shit don't add up. Nope. Nope. (laughs) That's not that's not feminism. (laughs) But so many of us do it. And we do it to each other. The way that we see our bodies is directly affiliated with the way that we see others. And we are, we are existing within these microaggressions all the time. We don't know that we're doing them. We don't know that we're doing them to other people. When other people, when fat people complain about these things, we often get gaslit about it. Mm-hmm. It's like your body positivity, if it doesn't include fat positivity, it ain't shit. So. I don't know. That's why I'm like, if the body positivity isn't about disabled, black, fat, trans women. (laughs) Like, if that's not the center of the way that we are organizing around justice issues, any justice issue, then we're not liberating anybody.
1: I've listened to this interview a bunch of times, and I still want to stand up and cheer when I hear that clip. Jana, thank you for your podcast and for sharing your story and your passion with us. The next guest I decided to feature is another educator who is one of my favorite people in real life as well as on the internet. Liz Kleinrock, award-winning teacher and creator and curator of the online educator community Teach and Transform. You can find Liz on all the social media platforms and I will link them in our show notes. She describes herself as an anti-bias, anti-racist educator in progress. And her platform is all about sharing ideas about how to make classrooms just equitable, decolonized spaces where all students are welcome and can learn and thrive. I asked Liz to start off by telling us about herself, her identities and her journey as an educator.
3: Thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw, for giving me the word intersectionality to really try to think about my identity and how I describe myself. Um, I am a female identifying transracial adoptee, Um, so I was born in South Korea and raised in a large white Jewish family in Washington, D.C., Um, so I also identify as Jewish. And identify as an educator. Um, I think my identity is really quite a mix of the things that are innate about me, but also what I choose to do and how I choose to spend my time and um, what I'm passionate about, and you know the things that I dedicate my life to. I definitely grew up in a very like global focused community. Like growing up in D.C., I was very lucky to be very aware that the world exists far beyond just me and my immediate community but also growing up in a very privileged environment, attending private school. I was always told about the importance of philanthropy, of giving back. But I do think that was mainly from very much a savior perspective, rather than getting to know communities, living in certain communities, and listening to what people there are already doing and how they would like to be supported, rather than imposing my own ideas about what I think people need. I think which definitely goes into the theme of feminism and you know what we think as people identify as women, what other people who identify as women should or shouldn't be doing. Um, so I do think there was a lot of learning and a lot of unlearning that had to go through this process. Um, because I went to a school that really had everything. Like I was, I had no idea what it was to want when it came to my education. Um, and then when I started teaching in Oakland, being in schools that were the polar opposite. Of that, um, very much along the lines of the school to prison pipeline. Children being yelled at, being told to just conform to the ideals of the school, what the adults wanted them to do, and really the lack of resources in the communities was a really intense experience for me. And I think that getting to know a lot of the kids and a lot of the families and then continuing my education when I attended grad school at UCLA that has such a strong focus on transforming public education, but really being embedded within these communities rather than being an outsider was a big shift in my own learning and understanding to start looking at schools and kids and families and communities through an asset lens versus a deficit lens, um, which was very much what I had grown up viewing. And it's still a work in process. Like there's so much unlearning that needs to be done. You know, when you are used to being embedded in the status quo, when someone presents an idea that is different or revolutionary, it can be quite jarring. Um, And being able to check myself when I have those reactions and question, why am I thinking this way? Why am I reacting this way? Um, Instead of just listening.
1: I actually told a story about Liz on the very first episode of Feminist Hot Dog. It was right after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and an activity she had done with her elementary school students about consent had gone viral. I always remembered that because, to me, it was such an amazing example of feminism in action, and it inspired me to ask her about what it meant to her to be a feminist teacher.
3: I think to be a feminist teacher, you have to lead by example. There are, are aspects of my job that where I want to take time to showcase and elevate and amplify Women throughout history who look different, um, who come from different backgrounds, who have championed for different causes, um, and teach my students about these people and their lives to show, you know, you don't have to have the same background or look like somebody in order to care about them, in order to want to ensure that they are treated with dignity and with respect and receive justice. And a lot of this work, I think, also transcends into the social-emotional work that we do in classroom really explicitly teaching about developing an emotional vocabulary, for example, or like with the consent work, like putting up boundaries and respecting boundaries and understanding that folks may look different from you. They may communicate differently, but at the end of the day, like we should all be here to like support each other. And I think a lot of this work, is also super important with raising feminist boys, too, getting away from gender roles and stereotyping and being able to have those conversations and point them out, too. Um, Because honestly, like the patriarchy is something that has been done to everybody, men included. Um, And it's really important for boys to understand that you can show emotion, that you don't have to prescribe to this macho, like alpha male type of personality in order to respect women, to be a feminist or to consider yourself a man.
1: One of the segments of the show that we did in the first two seasons was the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. And Liz's Hall of Famer was someone I had never heard of before. But once I learned of her, I started seeing references to her and her amazing work everywhere I looked. May is also Asian and Pacific Islander American Heritage Month, so it is a perfect time to learn about the life and legacy of this lesser-known national hero.
3: The person who I want to elevate today is Yori Kuchiyama, um, who is an incredible, or was an incredible, political activist um, who dedicated her life to advocating for social change and human rights and growing up like when Asian American history and identity is certainly not highlighted in the majority of curricula and textbooks, you really lack those types of role models when you identify as Asian American yourself. So I was all too, I was so, so thrilled to learn about her when I moved out to California. So Yuri was born in like the 20s here in California. And so after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and um, she's Japanese American, her father had like just gotten out of surgery, and i learned that he was arrested and detained in a hospital and he was the only japanese person in the hospital and the people there actually hung a sheet around him that said prisoner of war and so there was all of this racism and anti japanese sentiment going on and so after roosevelt signed executive order 9066 yori kuchiam and her family got sent to a concentration camp in arkansas for 2 years and also her father passed away so she is growing up in this time where she and her family are being targeted. Her her family has been treated with incredible injustice, and her father has died. And so, for the, after she was released, she's going to do something about it because she's a badass. Um, so she moved to New York, married Bill Kochiyama—that's her husband's name—who was in the all Japanese American uh, combat unit of the U.S. Army. So two very badass Asian Americans, and in New York. Yuri and her husband started holding all of these cool open houses for activists like in their apartments and it didn't matter if you were Asian American like she invited folks from who are black um, who identified as Latinx like she did all of this activism in Harlem in the 60s and really just opened herself and her life to advocating for anybody who was suffering from civil or human rights abuses. Um, so she protested against the war in Vietnam. She advocated for ethnic studies. Um, she was just incredible. And I love that since there is still so much an anti-blackness sentiment within the Asian community that she is this incredible Asian American woman who advocated so strongly and fought for black liberation. And in the 60s, she actually met Malcolm X and they became friends and they actually did a lot of um, political work together. And she was actually present when Malcolm X was murdered. I think she's actually in that photo from Life magazine where like she's cradling his head in her arms. And so for the rest of her life, she's incredible. Oh my goodness, I love her so much. She worked to ensure reparations for Japanese Americans who were put in concentration camps during the war. She spoke out on behalf of political prisoners, if they were Black or Puerto Rican or Native American or Asian American or even white. Again, like from the perspective of intersectionality, I love that she didn't just confine herself to helping people who just look like her. Like She was there for everyone and anyone. And I wish more people knew about her because she's such a badass lady. And kids, boys, girls, anybody needs role models like her to look up to.
1: Okay, kids, boys, girls, everybody, you have your assignment. Look up Yuri Kuchiyama and get inspired. Thank you, Liz, for coming on the show and for introducing us to your work and to Yuri. The last guest I want to highlight today is another fellow podcaster and someone I have had the pleasure of collaborating with a couple of times now. If you participated in the Best Feminist Life 2020 celebration last January, you may recognize the name Amelia Hruby, producer and host of 50 Feminist States. If you are not familiar with 50 Feminist States, it's definitely one to put in your queue. But rather than hear me talk about why, I am going to get out of the way and let Amelia tell you the story behind the podcast what it is, and what she's hoping to accomplish
0: on her literal journey. 50 Feminist States started, I think, the idea came in kind of like a flash of inspiration. And I always feel a little vulnerable telling this story. It just arrived fully formed, which I think is wild. And if that's never happened to you, it sounds nonsensical. And if it has, you're like, of course. That's-, that's that's basically what happened with Feminist Hot Dog. It just was, I like to say it was downloaded into my brain. Yeah, exactly. So in early 2018, I was really like in a period of feeling very scattered, just like in myself. And I wanted to integrate so badly. And I was really trying to figure out like, how do I bring together all of this academic knowledge I have about feminism, all of these amazing organizers I know in Chicago and around the country all of these podcasting skills I got from community radio and my desire to travel when I am very lucky to have a semi-flexible job and like career path right now. And I like really wanted to integrate all of that stuff. And I just started kind of saying that to people and then At a certain point, I think I can really think it was like June something of 2018. I like woke up and had this idea, like 50 Feminist States was the name. I knew I was going to do this podcast. I knew I was going to travel around the country and talk to activists and artists about their work, I would say, for gender justice and queer liberation. And yeah, I just knew. So then to make it happen, I crowdfunded for the first. I've done two Kickstarter campaigns to bring this to life at this point. It probably won't surprise you to
1: learn that Amelia is also an educator. That has emerged as a surprise theme in this episode. Um, It wasn't my intention, but now that I'm looking back, I've got three great educators on the show. And the goals of 50 Feminist States reflect her lens as someone who wants to not only impart knowledge, but also challenge assumptions. And in this case, assumptions about people who may live in parts of the country that are not commonly associated with progressive activism and resistance movements.
0: I've been in school for like 20-something years straight and have been teaching at the university level for the past four years or so. And so I'm really an educator at heart. And I always want people to learn things. And that goes through this podcast as well. So um, what I'm doing is trying to... Learn from the people doing grassroots work. Like I'm going to them and asking if they'll share their stories and tell me what they're doing and how they're making it happen. I learn from them, and then I'm trying to communicate that information to listeners. So, if I think even about the very first episode of the podcast, which was in Nebraska, which is where my family's from, so there was a kind of an autobiographical reason for me to start there. It also just happened to be where I was when I started the podcast. I Left. I like gave up my apartment in Chicago, put all my stuff in storage, and was like, six months, just this podcast. I'm going to do it. That first episode is about reproductive justice in Nebraska. And I found a flyer at a coffee shop for an abortion doula. And I was like, whoa, who knew there were abortion doulas in Nebraska? And especially because it's a very, the governor himself calls Nebraska pro-life state. So yeah, so it's a very anti-choice environment. So I was like, I got to talk to this abortion doula. And I did. And then Coop um, brought a few other organizers. And I was like, we're going to talk about abortion reproductive justice. And then we had this whole conversation about home birth that I wasn't expecting. And that's what the episode is about. So To circle back to like my goals, what I did with that episode is I listened to them. And then I did some framing and research to teach myself. And then you have this episode, I think that really shows how much you can learn about a topic that maybe you didn't know anything about. And that's what I hear most from listeners is like, I learned so much when I listened to an episode, whether it was that one, there's a really powerful episode about decriminalizing sex work um, with a friend of mine, activist um, named Red in New York. There's a really powerful episode also in New York about Palestinian liberation with a friend, another friend of mine, an activist named Dr. Ashley Bohr. So what I hope happens with this podcast foremost is that people listening learn about different feminist issues and the work that grassroots organizers are doing to resist to liberate themselves and others um some subsidiary goals that I always bring up too though are a lot of my audience is pretty urban and I want them to see these more rural or southern or you know sometimes far-flung midwestern places Mm -hmm. I'm going to Mm -hmm. I want them to hear from people there and realize that those people hold so much knowledge about resistance And that writings, this like red state, blue state narrative we have is total crap. I'm just going to call it out. It's bullshit. I live in Illinois, which is a blue state, but like only the Chicago is the only blue part of it. And there were people in the state legislature this year who like tried to who wrote a bill and tried to get it passed to like break Chicago off from the rest of the state. So it'd be its own state. Wow. Um, because the state, because ever, because it's like just like so conservative everywhere else and the population just means that because there are so many people in Chicago voting for democratic candidates, it's a quote unquote blue state. So I want this podcast to tell show people like those narratives are so oversimplified Mm -hmm. and that, There are people in every state who are incredibly progressive who are fighting so hard for their own liberation and their community's liberation and that I just find the people in those most embattled places have the best tools for resistance and I want to be learning from them and I want to be paying attention to and helping lift them up. So that's also always a goal in this podcast which is sometimes why like when I go to a state I go to a weird place or like I go to a city you've never heard of instead of going to like the big city there because I think... Those are the stories that that interest me and that I feel like honored and humbled to hear.
1: Like many feminist hot dog guests, Amelia did not always identify as a feminist. And I asked her to talk about some of the milestones of her journey that brought her from not identifying at all to being the host of a podcast called 50 Feminist States. And I should also mention the author of a forthcoming book, 50 Feminist Mantras.
0: I grew up in a kind of small-ish town in North Carolina. I think the county had like 30-some thousand people when I was growing up there. And pretty conservative family, very conservative environment. And then I went away I went to a boarding high school in North Carolina, and then I went to college in North Carolina, kind of all within a one-hour radius of the town I grew up in. And I think throughout all of that, I don't think I would have identified as a feminist. I was very steeped in a sort of you know, Christian ideology that I thought all people were valuable and, you know, I would, I think I would have said that I might've been one of those people that I hate when I, I hate when I hear this now, I think because of my personal background is like, I'm not a feminist, I'm a humanist and it, oh, it makes me cringe so hard. But I think that like younger me might've really said that, yeah. um, which is why it makes me cringe so hard. Like the most, those things, things bother you when you recognize yourself. The
1: sort of, the sort of all lives matter of, of yeah. feminism. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's probably what I would have thought. And, you know, I went to a women's college that had no feminist discourse. And while I was there, the like women's studies department that had only been open for a couple of years got closed. And
1: that's just sounds shocking to me. Yeah.
0: The college had previously been associated with like the Southern Baptist Convention and had left that because that church's rules were so antithetical to the point of a women's college and educating women and raising them up, but still had a lot of like kind of strong religious overtones. And yeah, so I went to this women's college without any sort of like feminist discourse. And I still learned on my own. I started studying a lot of philosophy and theory and learned so much and started to expand my worldview and but wasn't doing anything relatively like activist related. And so I got into grad school and moved to Chicago and. I took a couple women and gender studies classes. I started learning a lot. I met some of the activists I've now interviewed on the podcast and just had this whole feminist awakening. I don't know if I like when I say it that way, but just like I felt like my eyes opened and I realized that, you know, the particularly the like blue collar and middle class narrative that I'd been taught growing up about bootstraps and working hard. And if you work hard enough and you follow the rules hard enough, like anybody can get will achieve success and can have a comfortable life, I, my eyes were just completely open that, that wasn't true. And so I really got this like social justice education that really helped inform my feminism. And then I think I really came into feminism because I felt so stifled by the narrative that I... Needed to get married and have a man provide for me. Mm. And I tried really hard to live into that. I like dated awful people. I committed myself to them. I was so, it was really hard for quite a few years. And I think, you know, just reading feminist things and being around feminist people showed me that I didn't have to live that way. And some of the really beautiful queer community and queer family that I'm so happy have come to be in my community and love. I've been able to love and have loved me really showed me that I could reject those narratives. And that I think is when feminism really clicked for me when I was able to embrace like my feminine qualities and my masculine qualities and not value one over the other. And yeah, and then I could really proudly and still really proudly say that I'm a feminist and have since moved into my own critiques of feminism and Mm -hmm. white feminism and it's and you know all of its issues. So that's a journey as well. But The short answer is, no, I have not always been a feminist. I wish more people would talk about kind of how they come to feminism. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate the question because I think it's important. We all have different journeys. And I was always so jealous of all my liberal friends and their liberal parents and their like wokeness. And it took me a really long time to get here. And it's continued to kind of be pretty embattled with my family and other people I grew up with to kind of just not be who I am around them. Finally,
1: I want to revisit another show segment that we've left behind in season three, but that I think I want to bring back because I kind of miss it, which is the what made your feminist heart sing segment. And Amelia had a wonderful example from her road trip that really stood out to me when I heard it. Take a listen.
0: So, what made my feminist heart sing? So, I'm on this road trip going to nine states talking to feminist activists and artists. So Your heart must be like, it's like a full choir in <laughs> it there. it is. A whole choral arrangement of feminist happiness. But really, what, when I, when that, I love the question like, what made my heart sing was this experience I had last weekend in Water Valley, Mississippi. I went there to interview Jamie Harker, who opened a bookstore called Violet Valley Bookstore, which is, I believe, the only queer feminist bookstore in Mississippi. Um, Water Valley is a tiny town of about 4,000 people, and it has this, you know, idyllic main street, and there's a big kind of, like, restaurant that kind of... Um, Anchors that street, and Violet Valley Bookstore is right next door, and it's a used and new bookstore. It is covered in rainbow flags, you know. Just like driving down, you immediately or I immediately, you know, it's a place I'm going to feel welcome and safe. I met Jamie in the bookstore before it opened. You know, she met me there like Saturday at eight a.m. to do the interview before she works there the whole day, and we sat down and amidst this like whole. LGBTQ reading section which had amazing sections like lesbian police thrillers and like stuff wow like (laughs) like, so niche and wonderful it had this super rich feminist history section I bought all these books on like feminist workers rights and socialism and stuff um and so that really like the, the fact that that store exists made my heart my feminist heart sing jamie as a person made my feminist heart sing she is just this like powerhouse lesbian professor organizer she um and she was so humble and then i talked to some of her students that afternoon and they told me all these things that she didn't even bring up Mm -hmm. like she was integral to starting the pride festival they have in oxford mississippi she is the director of this Women and Gender Studies program at Old Miss, and that program is like getting, it's growing at a time when those programs across the country are shrinking because she's such a valued community member and leads it in such a brilliant way. She helped do this huge oral history project um, about queer voices in Mississippi. She just put out a new book about that. So she, she herself, and that bookstore make my feminist heart sing. And I can't wait to share the story um, in like the Mississippi episode of Fifty Feminist States. I hope your heart
1: is singing too after hearing that and all of those other awesome highlights. Thank you to Amelia, Liz, and Jana for showing up and being so generous with your time and your passion and for educating me and all of us who are listening. And thank you listeners for taking this trip down memory lane with me. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please consider heading over to patreon.com and becoming a feminist hot dog patron. Your support means a lot to me as an independent podcaster and as someone who recently went out on her own as a full-time writer and creative. Yes, I finally did it. So thank you, thank you to everyone who has supported me so far and to all of you for subscribing and rating and reviewing and spreading the word about the show. Our theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. As always, love yourself and love your bodies. Good